This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. We plough and sow, we are so low that we delve in the dirty clay Till we bless the plain with a golden grain and the vale with a fragrant hay Our place we know, we are so low down at the landlord's feet Oh, we're not too low, the bread to grow, too low, the bread to eat. Welcome back, listeners, to this instalment of the People's History of Scotland podcast, which is brought to you by Conta. I'm Sarah Bennett, and with me again is Chris Banbury, author of the book. And I'm very pleased to say that we also have a guest with us this week, Kenny McCaskill, who is Albert MP for East Lothian, He's also the former Scottish Cabinet Secretary for Justice and author of a few books in his own right, including Glasgow 1919 and Radical Scotland, the latter which is covering the period from the French Revolution to 1820, so really fits very well with what we're going to be discussing today. So in this episode, we're focusing in on Chapter 6, Radicals and Chartists. When I was reading this, it really recalled E.P. Thompson's The Making of the English Working Class because this is the period. But obviously, as that title suggests, it's focused very much on England, although Thompson does make some references to Scotland. But it was really interesting for me to try and do that kind of comparison. He starts off, if I recall correctly, in a London tavern with a corresponding society at the end of the 18th century. You start off your chapter with a tale of weavers in the village of Carlton on the outskirts of Glasgow, fighting back against a reduction in wages and the proscription of forming combinations or unions, as we'd call them today. This was two years before the French Revolution. And like all great revolutions, the French Revolution impacted internationally from Ireland to Haiti. But what was its appeal and impact in Scotland at this time? Initially, the French Revolution had broad support other than Edmund Burke, who was foretelling doom and gloom. Actually, even amongst the middle ranking, it was viewed probably akin to the sort of February Revolution in 1917 in Russia, where again, people thought that this was not too bad a thing. We are getting rid of an oligarch, and as long as they don't go too far, everything will be hunky-dory. And so initially, the French Revolution was supported broadly in Scotland and in the United Kingdom in particular by the working classes. The best example is, you know, people all of a sudden saw that there was a living possibility. You know, there had been in a heaven, but it was something that they were never going to reach or aspire to that better world until they died, and it wouldn't be for them in this life. All of a sudden, there was a possibility, and not only was there a possibility of a better life in this world, there was a living embodiment and a living example. You know, Scotland, everything was wrung in the colours of the French Revolution. The initial support for it in uh, the early 1790s cannot be underestimated. It was massive, albeit people then began to peel off, certainly the middle-ranking ones with the uh, execution of the monarchy. But initially, it transformed society, and that would be irrevocable because all of a sudden people realised that things could change and it was possible for a different way of life. Yeah. That's really important to keep hold of. I mean, we mentioned, Chris, you mentioned lack of democracy. I mean, we talk about the democratic deficit today, don't we? But what were we talking about in terms of a democratic deficit then? What was it like? You mentioned Dundas, well, but what was it like? in terms of um, the very, very limited, I mean, extremely limited element of democracy in the, the British parliamentary system. I mean, England, we know about rotten boroughs, votes for sale and stuff like that. Scotland's even less democratic. It's a much smaller franchise. 
essentially concentrated in the, the rich or the aristocrats and the people who controlled the royal boroughs. So there was a complete lack of democracy. And MPs were largely managed, first by the Dukes of Argyle, and then this character, Henry Dundas, who basically kept them in line for the Conservative government of, which became the government of Pitt the Younger, which was a very right-wing government, despite the hope that you know, people in Wordsworth had for the French Revolution. They sensed that this was a challenge to their position. And they very quickly were determined to defeat the French Revolution, either by subsidizing and helping the, uh, countries like Prussia and Austria, and eventually joining in in the war. And they also waged a war at home against supporters of the French Revolution. Very quickly introduced very severe repression. So Dundas is managing Scotland. Not very difficult to do. Keep them in line, bribe them, give them positions. But people understood this. So very early on, there's sort of demonstrations which broke out in solidarity with the French Revolution around George III's birthday, which was fated by the rich in Edinburgh, but went to rioting on the streets almost instantly after the fall of the Bastille. It wasn't just a solidarity with the French Revolution, with the Trio Liberty and the very symbols imported from France. They very quickly targeted Dundas, stoning his house in St Andrews Square, attacking his cohorts. So there was a combination of two things here, a general support for the French Revolution, for democracy, the rights of man. But in particular, the symbol of that was in Scotland, the autocracy, which was Dundas. As Kenny said, I think a level of sort of middle-class intellectuals who became quite radicalized, artisans and apprentices, cotters who were facing eviction from the clearances of the lowlands, and Robert Burns, you know, again, this is often written out of this, was a sympathizer of first the American Revolution and the French Revolution. Scotsman is echoing the marching songs of the French Revolution Army, and he suffered repression. He had to publicly recant his uh, support for the French Revolution because he was a government excise man. But he continued to write things like Scotsman. He continued those views. And Burns is reflecting, I think, a much wider firm among the, the cotters in uh, Ayrshire and elsewhere, People like the lawyer Thomas Muir and the farmer Thomas Scurvey begin to articulate this as a demand for change. I, I, I can only echo what uh, Chris has been saying. The suggestion that we had democracy in Scotland and the United Kingdom was nonsense. Scotland was owned and operated by large landowners, uh, the Duke of Buccleuch, the Duke of Berth, the Duke of Cathillis. The tragedy is that they're all still in situ. It's just generations on. They were the oligarchy that ran the country. Dundas operated it politically for Pitt the Younger. By the end of the 1790s, it was reckoned that he controlled 40 out of the 43 MPs. But the idea that we had democracy through elections, I think the population of Scotland was somewhere between 1.6 and 2 million. It was reckoned that the franchise and the right to vote was had by something like 4,000 people, half of whom were thought to be fictitious. And I did come across, and I put it in the book, us. Fantastic story about one particular election, which I think your, your readers might uh, might enjoy, because it was an election for the constituency of Butte, Ross and Cromarty. And if anybody knows the geography of Scotland, that is a significant uh, area. And it was reckoned that there were fewer than 50 electors for this widespread and extremely large constituency. Uh, the election was due to take place in Butte. And bad weather made travel to Rossi on the Isle of Butte where the election was being held impossible. As a result, only one candidate was on the island when the contest took place. However, not only was he the only the candidate, but he was the only voter on the island. Without either any sense of shame or legal impediment, he proceeded to nominate himself before the sheriff, 
Seconding the nomination in his apparently distinct role as chairman of proceedings, he then voted for himself. He went on to administer the oath of office for himself and even declared himself duly elected. So this idea that France was an autocracy, first with the royal family and then with the uh, revolutionaries, and we had glorious democracy in the British islands was utter nonsense. You know, and that election in Ross, Guten Cromarty just shows what a farce it was. Sounds like something out of a Monty Python sketch, a sort of thing you couldn't really make up. But that's great. For t- thanks for telling us that story. You've mentioned, obviously, Thomas Muir and William Skirving. They formed what's called the Friends of the People and hugely popular, really takes off. But as you've mentioned, Chris, this is kind of solidly middle class. I mean, the society, when it was formed, it had 1,200 members. Now, this is before the days of mass membership parties. Such things didn't exist. I mean, that's a significant number. And these saw themselves as being in an international context. They saw themselves as being allied to the French. And they also built links to the United Irishmen. So the first Scottish Convention, there were meetings mm, yep. to and from the United Irishmen, many of whom as widows. In fact, the bulk of the widows were Presbyterian of Scottish origin. And the point about this is that when there is a war by the Austrians and Prussians to restore the French monarchy, and the French defeat the Austrian-Prussian army at Valmy, essentially through mass mobilization, you by creating a modern sort of mass membership army rather than armies of the old order, they were able to overcome this. These people rallied to the French Revolution. I mean, they were celebrating mm-hmm. the, the defeat of Valmy in, um, you know, in Paris, where they burnt Dundas in effigy. And the capture of Brussels was celebrated in Paris by waging up a, a tree of liberty. And this support continues, mm-hmm. even with the execution of Louis the, the 16th. But at this point, once they execute the king, the British state is going to turn all its might on this, because there are obvious implications here for the whole political order. So the execution of a king immediately means that the pit government, the whole of the upper classes in England, Scotland, Wales, right across the board, turn on these people. And suddenly they are literally being witch hunted. You know, it's, it's rather similar to sort of McCarthyism and even worse, actually, in many ways, of the America in the 1950s. So, I mean, we've talked about the protests and we've seen protests in, in earlier chapters, often targeting the monarchy or one aspect of the church, Roman Catholic, uh, predominantly. Is this really a change then that it's the sort of establishment more generally that is being targeted? Obviously, there was rioting in the streets, some of which would just be near the wells uh, participating in drink, uh, as happened sometimes in the King's birthday riots. But they were manifesting undercurrents of sympathy. People did not take to the monarchy this idea that we all revered the King. I mean, there hadn't been a visit before 1820 from a monarch to Scotland since Charles I which I think was something like 160 or 70 years before. This idea that people were enthralled with the monarchy wasn't the case. This King's birthday riots in Scotland in 1792, I think it was. I mean, basically, they used to give out free drink in Edinburgh to show the largesse of the monarchy, the wealthy owners and burgesses of the town give back. So the people would celebrate the King's birthday because it was, you know, bountiful and free drink. But obviously, there was manifestations. People were protesting. A lot of it was vested upon Dundas because he was the embodiment of tyrannical rule. People, I think, actually thought that the king was innocent in all this, and that's why petitions would take place to the king north and south of the border because they thought the king was getting bad advice, and if only they could actually meet with the king and persuade him of the justice of their case, he would realise that and get rid of all these charlatans. So to some extent, they didn't blame the king. They blamed those that that were operating the society, the landowners, 
And, you know, in Scotland, we always think of the animosity that exists even to this day as going against the Highland landowners. It was equally against the Lowland landowners. It was against the oligarchs that owned the land. It just so happened that the clearances occurred in different ways. So all that was ongoing undercurrents. The find that the people in Scotland, although it took the name from the Friends of the People organisation south of the border, as you mentioned at the outset with E.P. Thompson, actually in the London Correspondence Society, that was the model that they took. And it evolved. Uh, you know, Scotland was a stranger place then. 1800, you only had seven towns with over 10,000 of a population. Glasgow only had a population of 60,000, 70,000. So it was weaving communities. The Friends of the People did start with lawyers. Lawyers were to the fore in the leadership. But actually, as pressure mounted, the Friends of the People became much more dependent upon the weavers, who were the miners of their day. And the weaving communities in Scotland were the strength of the area. The authorities knew things were happening there. The authorities couldn't do very much about what was happening there because they couldn't get into these communities they were clannish. I mean, to some extent, it was like the like the British Army in the in Ireland dealing with Cross McLean. People weren't prepared to talk, and even those not sympathetic weren't going to speak to the authorities. So the weavers were the uh, the shock troops. But the friends of the people had wide scale support. It started off much more middle ranking as pressure came and the lawyers ran for cover. It was left more with the uh, working class, and also it moved, as Chris was saying from being modelled on the London Correspondence Society to many, not the majority of you, wanted to be much more like the United Irishmen, who were all over what was happening, not simply in Ireland, but in England, Scotland and Wales. Because as you get to the end of the 1790s and you get the major mutinies at Spittle and the Noor, the United Irishmen's fingerprints were all over that. They were everywhere. At that stage, it was Protestant Irish moving across, especially after the failure of the 1798 rebellion. I always remember coming across the euphemism, planting Irish potatoes meant that you were up for uh, being a bit more rambustious and fighting back. If you were planting Irish potatoes this year, Sarah, it meant that you were prepared to countenance the right of resistance. After, you know, Thomas Muir was transported, after the repression came in, that's when people said, we ain't going softly, we ain't going quietly, we're going to stand back. And that happened north and south of the border. There were just differences in that the repression was probably greater down south. Popular loyalism was greater down south than it was in Scotland. And the attacks in some way upon the uh, radicals were probably more fierce, both horizontally as well as vertically. Kenny's right. In the process of 1792, the middle class elements in power, scared by demonstrations, scared by the sorts of debates, the debates of 2,000 people taking place in Paris, you know, which is a huge number about the French Revolution and everything else, they went offside. So it's becoming more radical. And when they have the power punt ball, is protest against it. And the Duke of Athol was greeted with calls to be guillotined. And people are collecting alarms in Paris, basically pikes. In 1792, it's becoming queer. Something is going to happen here. Either there is going to be a complete government crackdown or is moving towards a rising. And Thomas Muir takes this opportunity, understanding this, he takes a flying visit to Paris the very month when they execute the king. So on his return, he is arrested and put on trial. The guy who's in charge of this is the Lord Chief Justice Braxfield, you know, who is a complete animal. The jury is made up of nine landlords, one bookseller, two bankers, and three Edinburgh merchants. You know, this is the trial that Thomas Muir was facing. They'd already decided the verdict. And it's a brutal period. One that hasn't 
been much discussed in Scottish history, to be perfectly honest. When Thomas Muir, for a long time, was almost a forgotten man. He didn't deserve that. Today in Edinburgh's Colton Hill, there's an obelisk commemorating Muir Skirving and three other leaders of the Friends of the People. And it was unveiled in 1844 at that time of growing agitation for increased democracy. So what was the legacy then of Muir and his comrades and perhaps what's the legacy today as well? What we've got to remember is that the 1790s was a turbulent decade. And, you know, the Friends of the People, after Muir and the transportation in the 1794-95, that was when things moved towards us. Chris was saying we had the pipe plot. That's when people were preparing for resistance. That's when drilling was taking place in rural communities. You've got to get a balance right and realise that it wasn't the same as Ireland. Equally, it wasn't everywhere for cultural reasons, and the church was very much, you know, in the pocket of the, the establishment, which is why many more people, you know, were in dissenting churches. You get the impression in Scotland that everybody was in the Church of Scotland, when in fact something like one in five were in dissenting churches. And the reason they were in dissenting churches is they weren't prepared to accept landlordism, pointing the minister and so on. I mean, basically, friends of the people, as the lawyers in the middle class disappeared, you were left with the weavers and it became much more organised around the United Scotsmen. They existed. They were never the equivalent of the United Irishmen, but they were there. And to some extent, it's a bit uh, like, you know, Iraq with known knowns and known unknowns. They knew things were happening. They just couldn't get access to what was going on. They couldn't get into these communities. They couldn't gun people. They couldn't spy. And, uh, you know, the, the guy who history hasn't recorded, Thomas Muir is now getting rightly recorded. But there was a guy, Mule Maker, who actually his name should be on the obelisk as well. He was actually the author of the pamphlet for which Thomas Fish Palmer, one of the martyrs, was actually convicted and transported. Mealmaker went to Palmer's trial and said, I wrote it. But obviously they thought he was just a humble weaver and we don't want him. Fish Palmer was a minister in the Unitarian Church, I think. So obviously had breached class loyalties and they were going to make an example of him. Mealmaker is viewed as the leader of the United Scotsmen who were in that right to resistance, who were training who were operating, and it's quite clear that people were crisscrossing the country preparing for action. But then repression came in, Mulemaker was transported, has never been recorded, his name's not on the uh, the Martyrs Memorial, shamefully. And then, of course, the, the repression was significant. We know in Scotland that after the Highland clearances, forts were built all across the north, Fort William, Ruthven, Barracks. And actually, in the 1790s, they built forts all across central Scotland. Some five were built, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Hamilton, Perth, and someplace else. And the reason they did it was twofold. I mean, one, they were actually increasing the size of the army because of the Napoleonic Wars. But equally, they also began to realize that they couldn't billet people because previously soldiers were just billeted with locals. You're getting 10 soldiers, Sarah, like it or love it. You know, Chris has taken 20. That was how it happened. They then realized that they couldn't put soldiers with the community because the community were saying, why are you in the army? This idea, as with the myth that everybody was in the Church of Scotland, this myth that everybody adored the army. No, they didn't. You know, people went into the army because they faced unemployment. People didn't want their kids to go to the army, which is why we had the militia riots in Scotland at the end of the 1790s. But the other great euphemism will end on that is, as well as planting Irish potatoes, the other great euphemism for building these forts was it was all about internal tranquility. That's why they, they had to bring in conscription. They didn't have enough, which caused the militia riots, which were significant north and south in Scotland. But it was for internal tranquility. That was a euphemism 
for the heavy hand of the state closing down dissent. When I was growing up as a kid in Edinburgh, I must have passed the Mars Memorial approach every day, this obelisk in Calvin Hill in the old graveyard. I had no clue what it was. And I think this is important, actually, why we're having these podcasts. It was actually the rise in the 1970s of left-wingers writing about Scottish history, Scottish working-class history, the struggles of ordinary people that drew attention to Muir, Scurving, and these people. But the other thing I just want to add in is, is that there's something else happening here in the 1790s, 1800s, that Napoleonic Wars is a huge expansion, not just of British military power, the Navy and so on, but of the economy. And one of the things that's happening here is the Scottish upper classes are reforming themselves. It's no longer just the old aristocrats. You've got people who've made money in India and Jamaica and elsewhere. But you've also got all these sea captains and officers who served in the British Navy, huge numbers. And they have an identification with the British state. This becomes quite important. I mean, you know, a lot of the sort of the unionism, which will emerge in the course of the 19th century, it's coming from militarism. And that reinforces the point, I hate to show my age, but you know, when I was growing up as a kid, a lot of Scottish identity was about militarism. And a lot of it was about what we'd done in empire, you know, the thin red line in the Crimea, the charge of the Scots, grenades of Waterloo and all the rest of it. And again, it's one of the things that's changed in the course of my lifetime. The whole Scottish identity has been recast. On social media, I was following a bit of discussion, was Scotland a colony? Scotland was never a colony. We got access, I mean, upper class Scots, I shouldn't say we, we were key to empire. In a way, the Irish were virtually excluded from it. We were part of the British Industrial Revolution. Ireland was deliberately de-industrialized. A lot of those middle-class people who had been quite sympathetic in 1789 to the French Revolution, by 1815, they were cheering on, well, Pitt was dead, but they were cheering on his successes, that Tory government in England. So there's a change taking place here. The level of uh, industrial expansion means that by 1815, a working class is actually now really becoming a serious force in Scottish society. The obelisk shows the story of how it would be written out of history because the reason the obelisk was opened in 1843 was that the new town of Edinburgh was being expanded. Streets were being named, you know, Hanover Street, Frederick Street, Princess Street. Uh, statues were going up to Pitt. Statues went up to Dundas. And the uh, radicals said, where's ours? We want to record our history. And originally, those who know the geography of Edinburgh, they wanted to put the obelisk on the top of Carlton Hill so it would be visible from everywhere. And basically, that was refused by the council. They then got ground in Carlton Cemetery where it stands, and the council actually took a legal action saying that they would disturb the peace of the dead by building this memorial to the radicals. Thankfully, that was kicked out. But that was where it came about, because people could see that the lord and ladies were getting their statues, that the streets were going after the names of the battles in the Napoleonic Wars, and they said, where's our history? Sadly, as I say, all these years on, we're still struggling to get our history across. Are you enjoying this episode of A People's History of Scotland? Make sure to hit the subscribe button and leave a review. You can find us at Contour Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This way, you'll get every episode as soon as it's released, as well as all the other shows on Contra Radio Podcast Network. And head over to Contra.scot, where you can read up-to-date analysis of news, culture, and events in Scotland and across the globe. So let's move into the uh, 19th century, because we've said, obviously, 
massive repression at the end of the 18th century. But, you know, as we go into the 19th century, despite the massive repression, as you say, we're starting to see now the emergence of what we can call and recognize as a, a working class. But also the day-to-day reality and harshness of reality meant that rioting continued, mainly food riots. The suppression of wages, you mentioned in the book, Chris, that you know we're seeing expansion of, for the working population as well, which means there's more people available and a suppression of wages as a result. So we're seeing this continued turbulence that they don't quell completely. We've mentioned Napoleon. He was defeated in 1815, and that was followed by a really sharp economic recession. And William Cobbett, Cobbett, who gets mentioned, of course, obviously in the making of the English working class, he comes to Scotland and draws a crowd of 40,000 people wanting to hear him speak. So workers were fighting back and this leads to what's called the Radical Wars of 1820. So what's happening during this period of the Radical Wars? How significant was that time? I think it was very significant. There's been an attempt to kind of treat it as being a, a blow for Scottish independence, which I think it wasn't. Scottish identity always surfaces in class struggle. The class struggle and the national question aren't separate. But I think what's interesting is that the people who would take part in the failed insurrection of 1820 saw themselves allied to working class people in the north of England and Manchester. People in England, weavers, coal miners, et cetera, would sing Scots Way and other ballads, Burns' ballads, on their demonstrations. But this insurrection is really driven by the conditions you've talked about, by the weavers. It takes place in some really important places like West Hegel, in Glasgow itself, but most of the industrial villages around Glasgow. And unfortunately, it's, I think, provoked. The authorities were clearly ready for it and were able to stop it in the bud, apart from a march from Straven and the, the failed march on Karen Ironworks, the attempt to get arms, big arms, which would be produced there. And it's again met by repression. And I think what's again important about this is that a lot of this was forgotten. And it was only in the course of the 70s, again, a period of working class insurgency, and people began to talk about those working class struggles. And there were books, some of which I would challenge, but books were published. And even earlier, I remember a man called Harry McShane, who I knew a bit, you know, who was one of John McQueen's comrades. He's been responsible for Glasgow Trades Council getting the monument to Carlton Weavers who had been executed in the 1790s restored. It's important to know there is a plaque in Esperanto Stowing Castle to Harvey and the others executed there for that insurrection. I mean, I, I agree. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a nationalist rising. I mean, Scotland was a distinct society. The groups organised, you know, did speak in touch, and I'll go on to see that with those south of the border. But it wasn't a rising. It was a rising for democracy. It was a rising against the uh, ruling class. And to some extent, the 1820 was a general strike. I think you've got to put it in the context of why did it come about? It came about because of Peterloo. Because in, you look at the timeline, in August 1819, Peterloo massacre took place. News came to Scotland and there were mass demonstrations in Scotland. People were objecting. And it went back to what had happened in the 1790s when people all started going back to the right to resistance. If they're going to strike us down, then at least we'll die on our feet, not live on our knees. As a consequence of what happened in Peterloo, the demonstration in Paisley saw them having to put the army into Paisley. Paisley was under lockdown and curfew for seven days. All across Scotland, they were losing, uh, losing control as people were getting angry. And that's when people started to talk. There was a meeting, I think it was in Nottingham in, I think, December of 1819, and there was a pan-UK rising to be agreed upon in April of 1820. The rising was to be, obviously, not just in Scotland, but south of the border. What happened in England was that in February, you had the Cato Street conspiracy, 
And as a result of the Cato Street Conspiracy, as a result of the stitching up, thousands of English radicals were locked up and internment. What uh, I experienced in seeing in what happened in Ireland was happening actually south of the border. English radicals were basically set off to jail. They had a harder field to plough than in Scotland perhaps before, and they went to the jail. But in April 1820, that's when the 1820 rising took place. The best description of what it was, I think, came from Tom Johnson, the greatest Secretary of State that Scotland's ever had. He said that it was a general strike from which it was hoped that a revolution might occur. And it was a general strike. That shouldn't be underestimated. It was reckoned that 60,000 people were out on strike in the west of Scotland. Now, this is a time when the population in Scotland was under 2 million. So when you had 60,000 out on strike, you literally had everybody out on strike. And it wasn't just Baird, Harding, Wilson in the March Upon Carran. Everybody in the west of Scotland was out. Businesses closed. They knew what was happening. They had got the yeomanry. They had got the army moved across. One side of the Clyde was basically with the radicals. The other side of the Clyde was held by, you know, the army with cannon. Banks were boarded up. The rich had got their families out down the coast to largs and places such as that. What happened once the rising started in April was that Ayrshire was lost. The army admitted it in the records that they'd lost control of Ayrshire. So it wasn't just Glasgow and Paisley. It was all across Scotland with turbulence even as far as Perth. Basically, it was crushed. There had been a hope. The rising, the 1st of April was the Saturday, and that was when the bill had put up. And Chris is right. There was a lot of undermining of it by their forces of state. But I think the, the signs that went up calling for a strike, they actually were legitimate. There were spies and fifth columnists or whatever, but the strike was general. The billboards went up on Saturday the 1st. By the time you got to Monday, the strike was in place. And on the Tuesday, the notice for a rising was to be if the mail coach came up from Carlisle to Glasgow. If the mail coach did not get there, then that would be the signal that there had been a rising in England, which would be the signal for a rising in Scotland. As it was, the mail coach arrived. But for some reason, whether cock-up or conspiracy, some people decided to rise anyway. And that's why in Paisley and others, you had attacks upon large farmsteads as people sought to get guns. You had the march upon Karen. You had the army coming in. It had been hoped that there would be a rising down south. As it was, there were issues in Yorkshire and other places where guns were produced, where people did march upon towns, I think in Dewsbury and places such as that. The 1820 rising was uh, ultimately crushed. Baird, Hardy and Wilson were hung, then uh, decapitated. Uh, some 20-odds were then transported to Botany Bay. Uh, so the repression came in. The 1820 Rising was to be a radical insurrection across the UK, and it was predicated, caused by Peter Lou, underlined by the Cato Street Conspiracy. But it's a massive working-class aspect, and you know, in many instances, far greater in terms of its impact than, than Peter Lou in terms of just what was going on. Yeah, and I think it could possibly be the first real general strike in history. You also mention in the book, though, the proclamation of the Scottish Provisional Government. Chris, what, what, what was that? I don't think there was any notion that this was to create an independent Scottish state. I don't think that was there. Uh, I think the issue was, as Terry said, democracy and conditions which people work in. First, you have the hand weavers, and then you'll have the cotton spinners in Glasgow. These groups are rather like the miners in the 1970s. This was a real scare. I mean, you have 50,000, 60,000 people out on strike in the west of Scotland. To have you know, people taking over towns and communities. And at this stage of the game, it's also worth saying the only way they had of controlling order was by bringing in the army 
by going out on the streets, by striking and doing all these things, you were actually knew you were going to face the reading of the riot act. When the riot act was read, the army could open fire at will. And they did. If I've read your chapter correctly, Chris, it seems that, you know, as in England, the insurrectionary wave is waning. And so attention starts to turn towards other routes for getting change, i.e. the parliamentary route reform. But of course, the Tories block that in the Westminster Parliament, even though in reality, it's very modest in, in its demands. But this as well, when it was kicked out, this causes further rioting. Glasgow saw 100,000 protesters in support of the bill. But it seems it drew support from both workers and bosses, the Reform Act. Is that correct? The people larger on the streets, I mean, for instance, in Perth, 7,000 people demonstrated in support of the Reform Act. It was described as overwhelmingly working class. And although it was, there was no violence, the local bourgeoisie, the local aristocrats in Perth, which incidentally has got a very rich radical history itself, they were very frightened by this. In Glasgow, you're talking about a city still run. I mean, Glasgow didn't have an MP. It was still very much run by an oligarchy of rich merchants. So, I mean, once people are taken to the streets in large numbers, ordinary working class people, factory owners, were scared by this and would rally to the established order. Interesting. Yeah, Kenny, have you got anything to add to that? After the 1820s, the establishment knew that they had to change. Uh, they knew that they had faced an insurrection. They had managed to repress it and did so severely, but they knew at the end of the day, they would have to give as establishments have always had to give. And there were difficulties getting to the First Reform Act, but they knew that if they didn't give, then it would simply be a powder keg and it would be an explosion yet again. Because you look at the generational thing, people who were involved in the 1820 Rising in Paisley, some of them were involved in the 1790s. They just had to duck down for a decade or more back they came. So, you know, they knew that they would just be a matter of time and that's why they the Reform Act of 1832 came in. They had to see something. It only took the franchise in Scotland, I think, from something like 4,000 to 60,000. So it was only a few more that were getting the vote, but it was still seen as progress. It was also a soft sell because after 1820, you had the tartanization. Things like Highland Games were invented because the uh, landowners were encouraged to actually throw a few beans and uh, goodies to the locals to show that they weren't all just nasty landowning, rapacious people. So Highland Games were invented. They hadn't existed. There was a, an iron fist that they had used in, for example, 1820 and indeed in the 1790s, but they also had the Velvet Glove. Part of the Velvet Glove was the First Reform Act. That was accepted. Chartism then came into Scotland, and it was also indicative that one of those, I think only two came back from those who were transported in 1820, but one became quite involved in the Chartist movement. I think his name was Mackenzie. On his return, he was fretted. Because again, it was generational. By the time you're getting to the to the 1830s, 1840s, people are basically ready to go again. And that's where chartism started to rise. The man most responsible, Kenny's talking about, was uh, Walter Scott. Uh, it's interesting because Scott represents, I think, the contradictions in what's now the Scottish upper class. I mean, he's really scared by the working class. He doesn't get it. He's scared by industrialization. He's a Tory, he's a reactionary. But he also has this sort of sentimental Scottish nationalism and writes these four brilliant novels about recent Scottish history to well worth uh, reading. And it represents sort of contradictions of tartanry, which Tom Nairn famously wrote, uh, wrote about, but combined with acceptance of the British state and deeply reactionary politics. So Scott 
represents a kind of new Scottish identity. That I'm trying to talk about comes in the 19th century. We'll talk about it later. Fascinating character. 1837 sees a really significant defeat in Glasgow and Scotland, which is the, the cotton weavers. This is a, these are industrialized workers using machinery, power rooms, uh, in factories. Uh, they are the cream of the Scottish working class at the time. They are provoked during an economic recession into what's essentially a lockout, big repression. They're defeated. Unfortunately, that comes literally just on the cusp of Chartism. There's been some fantastic books by Dorothy Thompson and other people about Chartism in England and Wales. I have to say Scottish Chartism is a relatively sorry story because the working class, I think, had suffered that defeat in large part. But you also mentioned, and I thought this was really interesting, if you like, within workers' heads, the separation between, if you like, economics and politics, so that groups of workers would strike, but they would distance themselves from battles over wages. It seems that you you mentioned that towards the, the end of the chapter. So they're not striking for wages, but in favour of the charter instead. I don't think it was to the same extent as south of the border, but you had Dr John Taylor and others, and it's quite clear that there was, as well as there being differences north-south, there were differences east-west. You know, in terms of whether you supported physical force, there were differences between Edinburgh and Glasgow. It was a mixed picture. Scotland had a lot going on in the 1840s. You had the legacy of the 1820s that presumably reverberated down. You also had the Great Disruption with the schism when the Free Church of Scotland broke off from the Church of Scotland. So that would have taken a lot of energy within community and with society as well. So Chartism did exist in Scotland. It is a very obscure bit of Scottish history. You know, even I assume that perhaps the other things going on in Scotland, industrialisation, as Chris has mentioned, the, the cotton spinner strike, there were issues there, both with, you know, uh, violence put both ways. So it might have been the backdrop. I don't know. Others far more knowledgeable than me, but I, I can't imagine anything other than that the, 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 the disruption of the cut could have had huge reverberations across society, you know, because church and state are very related. A Scot did play quite a crucial role in one sense. A woman, we haven't talked about many women, a woman called Helen McFarlane comes from Cross Hill just outside Barheed. And she was the first person to translate Marx and Engels' Communist Manifesto, which appears in uh, the Red Republican. I think it was Har uh, Harney's paper. And she's a, a really interesting character. Again, someone who's been kind of tipexed out of history until quite recently. She was the first translator using a male pen name, Howard Morton, but she was a feminist. You know, something quite unusual at the time. She wants a republic without poor, without classes. A society such indeed as the world has never yet seen. Not only a free man, but a free woman. And Marx described her as a rare avis, a rare bird. Yes, a rare bird. She was in Vienna, but obviously caught up in that revolutionary tide of 1848. Yeah, I found that fascinating reading about her. What, there's so few women that we get to read about in this period of history. It's important that we bring them up and, and highlight them when they're, when they're there, especially when she was the first person to translate the Communist Manifesto. So, yeah, so did the 1848 revolution, did that help shake up the Chartist movement? Did it revive it, do you think, Chris? Oh, oh yes. In my book, I talk about, I mean, it's almost a semi-insurrection in Glasgow. And you have to combine into this as well. You're having no beginning of mass Irish immigration because of the famine. And there is an uprising led by the uh, Young Ireland in the 1848. So, but this is part of a whole European way. Charleston begins to move towards physical force. They're arming. And the Irish are involved here. A lot of the dynamic for the radicalism in England, Johnson, was about the Irish. They put a crucial role, Bronte O'Brien, lots of black readers, I have to say as well, which again, never talked about. Now in Scotland, you have 
a radical Irish Republican tradition coming in. And by 1848, that's much part of journalism. It's unfortunate this is defeated. It's a long story, but it morphs into essentially a hegemony of liberalism, Gladstonian Whiggism. But there was some potential, I think, in 1848. Yeah, you finish up the chapter, I think, talking about that demise of Chartism that sees the Whigs, liberalism, dominating British politics, and also its influence over the trade union movement, I suppose. You say in Scotland it exerted more influence than south of the border in the second half of the 19th century. And I know we're sort of creeping towards the next chapter, but just while we sort of wind things up with chapter six, how important is that going to be? I think it's be? very important. I mean, really prior to Red Quainside, Scotland had lower trade union membership, lower levels of strikes. The dominance of liberalism was such that, for instance, they didn't have to allow uh, Lib Lab MPs. In the mining areas in, in England and Wales, under pressure from the mining union, they had to agree the Liberal Party to miners' widows becoming MPs. One of the reasons why Keir Hardy breaks away uh, and forms the Scottish Labour Party is because and Liberals in Scotland are under no pressure. They dominate. You know, someone like Paisley, which had been an absolute cradle of uh, radicalism up until 1848, it becomes really a centre of liberalism. Kenny. I'm going to hand over the last word to you. There were changes going on in Scottish society. Chris is quite right. Mass emigration in as well as emigration out. Changes in religion. Trade union organisation was taking place. Scotland was probably far behind, you know, the, the major cities south of the border, but there was still history there to, to be touched upon and no doubt you'll be doing that in your next podcasts. Well, yes, indeed. Uh, in fact, the next episode will be focusing on Chapter 7, which is the Highland Clearances and Resistance. So I'm sure we'll be taking up some of the threads from this particular chat that we've just had, which was really interesting. So thanks to you both. Kenny, thank you very much for being our guest. I'm sure you might well be invited back for future episodes. I know you've got a lot to say on Scottish history. Chris, as always, thank you very much. And thanks to everyone listening in. And we'll talk to you again next time. Bye for now. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A People's History of Scotland. This series is only possible because of support from listeners like you. If you'd like to help us make more shows like this, please head over to contour.scot and make a donation or subscribe to our Patreon channel. The music is by Ewan McLennan from the album Stories Still Untold. Special thanks to him for allowing us to use this song. We're low, we're low as to war we go To fight some foreign country That yesterday was our greatest friend Today's our enemy God bless our boys, the papers scream Praise them, the churchmen cry But oh, when the war is done and we're all home Who cares if we live or die? We'll low, we'll low till that happy day We're called to a heaven on high Oh, and the freedom we never had in our lives Will be there on the day we die But have you seen, oh, what suffering hell on earth For the promise of a heaven above Oh, I not join the fight That one day we might see a heaven down here below See a heaven down here below